Hello, welcome to Women in the Word. So good to be with you. Good to be with you out at the West Campus. Welcome to you wonderful women as well. I'm Lynn Kitchens, part of the teaching team. Hope you're enjoying the study of Joseph. I just love it. Um, I was thinking about when you consider the last couple of lessons with Joseph, do you feel like you're watching a soap opera a little bit? I mean, here it is, his brothers hate him, they get rid of him. Joseph amazingly becomes handsome. What a surprise. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Joseph runs, he gets thrown in jail. Now I was thinking the only thing that would really make it a soap opera is if Joseph's evil twin brother shows up. <laughs> Joseph's story is an amazing story. But television didn't make it up. It's God's true story about his will, his providence. It's God's true story about his goodness and his greatness as he directs and he protects the beginnings of his nation, Israel. And Joseph gets to be an important part of that fabulous story. So when we find him in this unfair situation of being forgotten in a prison, it doesn't really make sense to us. Unless what we've been talking about, God uses the hard things in our lives to make us better. Meanwhile, when we think about our lives, what do we do when we find ourselves imprisoned in an unfair situation when things don't make sense? And it's a very simple answer. We put our hope in God alone. In God alone. Because people are gonna let us down. Circumstances may oppose us. Oppose us. Think about Joseph, his brothers let him down, Potiphar and his wife let him down, the cupbearer who was released from prison that Joseph blessed, he forgot about him, he let him down. We must hope in God alone. And here's the roots of our hope. It's on your verse sheet, Romans 8, 28. Here's what we believe. This is the root of our hope, that for those who love God, he's going to work things for good. For those that are called by God, he's going to work things according to his purposes. This is our hope. When we find ourselves in the darkness, we believe God is there. He'll use the hard things now for good things later. Here's how Romans 8 describes hope. Look on your verse sheet. Hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Look what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I found another poem about it, since I like poems. <laughs> Pain's furnace heat within me quivers, God's breath upon the flame does blow, and all my heart in anguish shivers and trembles at this fiery glow, and yet I whisper as God will, and in his hottest fire, I hold still. 
He takes my softened heart and he beats it. The sparks fly off at every blow. He turns it over and over and he heats it and he lets it cool and he makes it glow. And yet I whisper as God will. And in his mighty hand, I hold still. Why should I murmur? For the sorrow then only long-lived would be. Its end may come and will tomorrow when God has done his work in me. So I say trusting as God will and trusting to the end, I hold still. Joseph may not have understood his prison days, but he understood God. He knew God's faithful. He knew God would have a plan. We know this to be true because of a couple of things. First of all, he interpreted the dreams you saw last week of the baker and the cupbearer. Now, if Joseph had given up on his own dreams from God, he would not have offered to interpret their dreams. He would have not had that hope. And we realize Joseph gave God the credit for his interpretations. So today we get to realize his testing, his training, his preparation for the work that God has for him is over. He's proven to be faithful, and now he's fit for service. He's going to leave the prison for the palace. So look at Genesis 41 for me. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile, and the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh, unlike Joseph, is a picture of a man who has no hope. He has these troubling dreams. He's very distressed by him. We also get some great visual pictures of what Egypt was like, what the culture of Egypt was at that time. So first of all, we see the Nile River. It's the lifeblood of Egypt. Standing on the shore next to it is Pharaoh, Seven plump cows are standing half submerged in the water. Cows do that to get out of the heat, to get away from the insects. In fact, I drive past this one field, and in the summer, I see all these cows standing in a pond about neck deep, just standing there, trying to get out of the Texas heat. These cows come up out of the Nile. They're grazing on the reeds along the Nile. The seven thin cows step out of the river, eat the plump cows. Now, in Egypt, the cow was revered as a symbol for the earth's productive powers. So that would also really get to the heart of Pharaoh and disturb him. The second dream carries the same theme. This time, it's corn. Egypt was known as the granary of the world. So these thin and unhealthy ears of corn swallow the plump ears of corn. What Pharaoh doesn't know is his dream symbolized God was sovereign over Egypt's economy. No matter how powerful 
A nation might think it is. No matter how great a nation is, it is never beyond God's sovereign control. But Pharaoh is distressed. He can't understand the dream, so he puts his hope in the magicians of Egypt. And I was thinking, I'm glad that people today don't do anything so dumb as that. <laughs> you know, nobody goes to their horoscope or a fortune teller to figure out what their future's going to be. Isn't it sad <laughs> that we still do this today? Quite sad. These magicians belonged to a guild. They were experts in handling books of magic. They were experts in the crafts of false priests. But these were symbolic dreams, and they had no power to interpret them. So enter Joseph. And God had determined his wise servant Joseph would be the means for delivering Egypt because he's sovereignly in control of all the nations. The cupbearer explained that Joseph had interpreted his dream in prison correctly, though he'd forgotten Joseph until then. And so we read in our homework, Pharaoh immediately calls for Joseph to stand before him. Wow. I mean, think of that. Stepping up out of the darkness, seeing the light, coming out of that time of darkness in prison. Little did Joseph know that now was the time his boyhood dreams were going to come true. That God uses our days of darkness to prepare us for the work he has planned for us. And here's the reality. We may be forgotten by others. We are never forgotten by God. We are never forgotten by God. No matter what dark place you may even find yourself in today, never forget that. He never forgets us. He has goodness in mind, help in mind. That's why we hope in him. Look at Psalm 103. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Our circumstances that can overwhelm us, they stand around us, but they aren't over us. God is over us. He's sovereign. He's over our circumstances. We can't let them take that position that belongs to God. I was thinking about my sister Dawn, and I've mentioned before she had an inner city ministry in um, an area in L.A. for over 25 years. Due to a number of circumstances, her support system abruptly ended one day. Her circumstances looked bleak. She was super distraught. She was thinking, I have to find another job. But her heart was still with these needy teenagers she'd been working with in the inner city of L.A. Slowly, she began to see how even though those circumstances were around her, God was over them. And this man, she didn't know, out of the blue approached her. He had had a ministry in the same area and said, Hey, I'm closing mine down. Do you want the money left in my ministry? Okay. And then she had like 20-something volunteers that came from that culture that were older that worked with her. And they all looked at her and said, we're just going to stay with you. So she had them. My wonderful son created a new logo for her called Youth First. You can even look that up if you want. Her ministry is as vibrant and as effective as it's ever been. 
Her circumstances around her looked bad. They didn't stand over her. God did. So Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Let's look at verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. They quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he'd shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream. There's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. This is an amazing part of the story as well. The summons for Joseph is so urgent, but they would never put him in front of the Pharaoh of Egypt looking and smelling like he did from the prison. So they shaved his whole body, which would be the Egyptian way. They shaved his head. They put him in clean clothes. They stood him before Pharaoh. He was different looking outwardly than he'd ever been in his life. But I want to know, was he different inwardly? Did those days in prison have him give up on God? Is he bitter over that lost time in prison? But we see in these verses, after years in darkness, he stands before Pharaoh as a man who has a strong faith in God. His words to say, it's not, God, it's not me who can interpret it, but God will give you a good answer. Here's the actual translation of this. Set me aside and let's look to God for the answer. An amazing thing to say. He boldly speaks about the one true God to a man who is considered a God. And Joseph has no fear before him. He goes from the prison to the throne of a king. These are his first words because he knows that a king is nothing compared to God. He talks about the one true God as he stands before a false God. And Pharaoh yields his dreams to Joseph and Joseph's gods. And because of that, Joseph's God, because of that, his nation would be spared from the famine that was about to come. So Pharaoh explained his dreams to Joseph and Joseph interprets it. Verse 25. Joseph said, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. Seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land during the seven plentiful years. Let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and her food in the city, for food in the cities, and let them keep it. 
That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Okay, Joseph, let's note it. Uh, Pharaoh noted, you notice, who's he talking about through this whole thing? God. God's in control. God has a plan. God can help you out. God's letting you know what's coming. There'll be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Having two versions of the same dream means God's going to carry this out soon. And I'm picturing Pharaoh going, hey, something's got to be done. We need to respond to this revelation from God. And I get the feeling that without Joseph's wisdom, I don't know that Pharaoh would have known what to do. God has Joseph there for that reason. So Joseph says you have to find a man who will save one-fifth of the produce. Hold on to that food during the good years so you have it for the bad years. We're going to learn that this revelation wasn't only the means God used to get Joseph to power. It was also the means God would use to save Egypt, to save much of the world, and to let everyone know deliverance comes from the one true God. That message would be ringing out in Egypt and in the world. The great famine would be part of God's way of making himself known to the world. And Joseph gets to be a part of that. When we've been prepared, when we've been directed and refined for God's purposes, when we realize God's leading us out of these dark steps, out of the darkness into the light, to bless us and to use us, when God calls us to serve him, we have the opportunity to tell others about the wonders of God. The wonders of God. We don't serve him for our own satisfaction, for personal recognition, or man's approval. You know, Joseph stood in front of Pharaoh disregarding his own future and his own fate. To be that bold and just gotten out of prison could be kicked back down the stairs for who knows how many years. He just speaks truth. He speaks about the power and the plans of God to Pharaoh. He didn't use this as an opportunity to magnify himself. You would think that someone would say, here's my chance to get out of prison. Yes, oh, Pharaoh, I can do many great things. You need me around. He didn't even think about that. Didn't even cross his mind. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Joseph wasn't interested in glorifying himself, and so God would use Joseph to bless Egypt, the world, and his nation Israel. And that's what God does with us. Isn't it awesome? When our goal is to bring glory to his name without considering ourselves, he will use us in our neighborhood. He will use us on the PTA. He will use us in our community to glorify himself. 
I was thinking about um, the women's downtown ministry called Common Ground, um, and it's just a great ministry. We have women on staff down there, and at noon, women that are at work run over to Common Ground for a Bible study and some lunch. They don't necessarily go to Christ Chapel, and because we've been lifting the name of Jesus in the city of Fort Worth, they have sat up and taken notice and offered us a place three times bigger than what we were renting at a better price, and they want us to keep doing that. That's God's faithfulness, because nobody in there is looking for their own glory. They're just talking boldly about who God is. Isn't that great? So I don't think Pharaoh pondered very long who this wise and discerning man could be when he was listening to Joseph. Someone to bring Egypt through the famine, and we see that Joseph is made ruler of Egypt. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and his servants, and he said, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God's shown you all this, there's none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck. He made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh. Without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zephaneth Paniah, And he gave him marriage, Eseneth, the daughters of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh is so impressed with Joseph's wisdom, he recognized God's spirit on him. He chooses him to be the leader in Egypt. This thought would never have come to Joseph's mind. He, he just had on his prison rags. He's a foreigner. Oh my gosh, this is what God has for me. Because Joseph had proven faithful in the little things, God is entrusting him to be faithful in much. Think about his past. He'd been in the leadership over Potiphar's household, and that had prepared him. Then when he was in prison, he was put in charge of all the prisoners, and that had prepared him for leadership. And he'd always been serving others. He was a servant to Potiphar. He was a servant to the keeper of the jail. He was a servant to the prisoners. And now he can be a servant to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. God had worked all things for good for Joseph. Managing and serving others for 13 years had prepared him to be a wise Egyptian leader. And I thought the most unlikely circumstances in our lives are part of our spiritual education. You would think that Joseph's rejection, his enslavement, his imprisonment would result in him becoming a broken vessel that God couldn't use. And don't we sometimes get that mentality and it's so not true that even though we've had rejections in our life, even though we've been imprisoned, 
in unfair situations, even if we've been enslaved to sin at some time in our lives, we should never think we're broken vessels that God can't use. If God works all things for good in those he's called, he will use those things in our lives for our spiritual training. There's a quote I loved, and he says this, how beautiful it is when life is interpreted in the light of God's dealings, and when everything in our lives, dark or light, has its own divine significance. Isn't that great? When everything in our lives, dark or light, has its own divine significance. Here's part of a poem. Rest in the Lord, my soul. Commit to him your way. What to your sight seems dark as night, to him is bright as day. Rest in the Lord, my soul. He planned for you your life. He brings fruit from rain. He brings good from pain and peace and joy from strife. So if we look at Joseph now, all things have become very new for him, which happens in our lives as well. In fact, I thought it was a great, uh, in the Psalms, which David wasn't even alive yet, he had a lot of similar experiences as Joseph, and he penned what it's like to come out of those dark days and face God. Look at Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. It sounds like Joseph wrote that, doesn't it? New, he's new, he's no longer in prison rags, he's wearing new garments of fine linen. He is now wearing a new gold chain. He's wearing a signet, gold signet ring to sign documents. They would take soft clay, they'd put it on a document, he put his ring in it, take it out, the imprint would harden, and that would become a legal contract. It was a lot of power. Whoever had that ring on had a lot of power to do business on behalf of Pharaoh. Now Joseph needs the required social standing, so he has a new Egyptian name, Zaphonath Paniah. Some people think it means God speaks and lives, which what a great meaning. Now, for the Egyptians, they would have meant God speaks and lives, little g, <laughs> for Joseph. It would have been big G. His God did speak and live. He has a new Egyptian wife. She's from the city on. It's the center of worship for the sun god. And some past literature claims she came to believe in Joseph's true God. I think that probably is true. A possible proof would be that when they have children, they give them Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. She's also, again, mentioned by name as the mother of the children, which we can deduce that Joseph was practicing monogamy, one wife, like his forefather Isaac did. So God blessed Joseph with Manasseh and Ephraim before the famine arrived. They had unique birth announcements, both names announced to the world, Joseph's a man of faith and Joseph serves a great God. Manasseh meaning he who brings into forgetfulness. 
Joseph is attributing God with all his blessings and saying, and it's because of these blessings that I'm able to forget my hardships. Ephraim, his other son, meaning to bear fruit. Joseph announced that God had made him fruitful in the land of his affliction. And I thought, you know, even in the land of our affliction, we can bear fruit. Here's what I usually think. When I get out of this dark time, when I get out of this trial, then I'm going to be able to do blah, 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 blah. You know, in the middle of our affliction, we can be producing fruit if our hope is in God. If our hope's in God, that happens. Of course, I was thinking about Corey Ten Boom. A lot of you know who she is. She suffered in a Nazi concentration camp. She and her sister, they were older. They were um, not Jewish. They had just helped Jews. And they lived in these abysmal, horrible situations in this concentration camp. And if they had just thought, when we get out of here, we're going to be able to talk about God. No. (laughs) They did it the whole time they were in the pit, in the darkness, in the middle of the trial. And fruit dropped at their feet every day as they led people to the Lord as they worshiped together and sang glory to God. So Joseph was also bearing fruit in prison. So can we. Here's a great quote. The way upward often lies by a downward path. The way upward often lies by a downward path. So Joseph's now in command, second in command of Pharaoh, ruling over the land of Egypt. Hard for us to envision He didn't look anything like he had looked when he first got there. He's in the second chariot, and as he's be riding behind Pharaoh, servants would be hopping off the chariots, yelling to the people, bow the knee. And as Joseph's chariot passed on the streets, people would do just that. And Joseph's wisdom prevailed as he served Egypt, saved Egypt, and much of the world during the famine. All who needed grain in the lands around them were to go to Joseph. So the time had come for God to bring his nation Israel to Egypt. God sovereignly controls the destinies of every nation to protect and provide for his covenant people. He's done that. He's doing that. He will always do that. And all of Joseph's life had been a preparation for him to be used by God to provide for God's people as they grew into a nation in the foreign land of Egypt. For those who are called by God, he works all things according to his purposes. Look at Hebrews 10. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. If we could head to Canaan now, I want to go into the house of Jacob. I want to go sit around his kitchen table. So let's all sit around his kitchen table. There's Jacob. There's the brothers. And there's a bunch of empty bowls sitting on the table in their kitchen. We see they're hungry and they don't have one plan for providing food for themselves. At least the brothers don't. Jacob looks at these forlorn, 
faces of his sons and says, why do you keep sitting here staring at each other? Get some food. Go to Egypt. Everybody in the world's going to Egypt. Get up and go to Egypt and get us some food. But don't take Benjamin. Not letting you take Benjamin. I think Jacob had some suspicions that they had a part to play in the disappearance of his son Joseph. And he doesn't trust his own sons. When these brothers will come to Egypt, they will have to come to Joseph. They will come and enter the room, bowing down to their brother, just as he dreamed they would do when he was a boy. And even though this would confirm his dream, it would not be the fulfillment of it because all of Israel were to come and be under Joseph's rulership in Egypt. Look at chapter 42, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And his brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said? From the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. And he remembered the dreams he dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. No, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one land. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. No, it's the nakedness of the land you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. Let him bring your word. Uh, sorry. Let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Okay, Joseph is testing his brothers. Remember, it was God's plan to to um, channel his blessing through Abraham's seed. He planned for Israel to come to Egypt, to grow into a great nation. But this was going to require that these people had faith in the one true God and that they would be faithful to the one true God. So Joseph desired to ascertain the faithfulness of his brothers, of those who would participate in God's program. He had to test them before they could share in that blessing. So the brothers had to perceive that God was moving against them so they would acknowledge their crime against Joseph. So if we think about this scene, it very much parallels chapter 37. Remember that time when the young Joseph in his coat of many colors is going across a field and he wants to go see how his brothers are doing shepherding? They see him from afar and say, we hate him. He's a dreamer. He thinks he's all that. Dad loves him more than us. He's coming to spy on us. Let's kill him. Chapter 37. That's how they treat him, and this parallels that. Now Joseph the oppressed becomes the oppressor. Now Joseph ignores their pleas as they ignored his pleas as they threw him in a pit. 
and watched him be taken away. Joseph's brothers saw Joseph as their father's spy. Now Joseph accuses them of being spies. The one they threw into a pit, now he throws into a prison. And all of these things are a deliberate test to pressure them for God to work on them. Joseph recognized them and remembered their deeds. They did not recognize Joseph and they must remember their deeds to come into this land, to follow the one true God, to be under Joseph's rulership. So Joseph took action to awaken the consciences of his guilty brothers, and that's what's going on. So to establish they were honest as they claimed, he demands that they bring their youngest brother. He also wanted to see how he was doing. I think if he knew, you know, they didn't like me because dad liked me best, they're probably not liking Benjamin too much, the two children of Rachel. So he throws them in prison for three days so God could work on their consciences, which I think is amazing. He's so smart. He just did all these things. Now they're sitting on a stone cold floor thinking about, we've got to get Benjamin. What's dad going to do? He's going to be miserable. Oh, yeah. We kind of did that to him with our brother Joseph. And now they're in a prison in a foreign land, and they might begin to think about the fact that, yeah, we had our brother taken away, and he was taken to a foreign land as a prisoner. And later we'll see that Joseph plants money in their sacks to compromise them and quicken the fear of God in them. And, you know, when you first read this, you're almost tempted to think, wow, Joseph is me. He's just, like, hateful. He's being hateful to them. And, you know, if we want to say he's acting um, vengeful and hateful, we would be absolutely right. He is acting vengeful and hateful. In reality, great affection is motivating what Joseph is doing for them. What is more loving than want to free someone from their sins and strengthen their faith in God? What is more loving than that? He has every human reason to treat his brothers unkindly and hatefully. But what we see here is what we like to call today tough love. Joseph displays divine love in this story, and that's why God can use him in his brother's lives. And I realize, you know, when we stay bitter over unfair, cruel things done to us, not only does our heart get hard, our hands get hard. We can't serve anymore. We can't embrace and love unloving people anymore when we hang on to those things in our lives. The fact that he was doing this shows what his true heart was and his love for God. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 tells us, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. So we can be God's vessel when our love for others reflects God's unconditional love for us. When Joseph releases his brothers from prison, I thought this was so great. He speaks words to them to make sure they keep their thoughts on God. Look at verse 18. 
On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And do you see the very first things he says at the top? For I fear God. Do you? Do you fear God? And he leaves it at that, and I think his words hit their target. Verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we're guilty concerning our brother and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we didn't listen. That's why this is happening to us. And Reuben answered them, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? You didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They didn't know Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And Joseph turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And he gave orders to fill their bags with grain and replace every man's money in his sack. And he gave them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with grain and departed, and as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? Yay, they're convicted of their sin. They recognize that God is bringing to light the thing they've been trying to keep in the dark for all these years, for 20 years. 20 years earlier, Joseph's cries for mercy from the pit didn't soften their heart. Their father's tears at the loss of Joseph, it didn't move their hearts. God is moving their hearts. Their guilt is rising up within them taking hold of those hardened hearts. And Joseph gets to see that with his own eyes. And he bursts out weeping. And he has to run out of the room. It's so overwhelming for him. It's what he wanted, but it's hurtful hurtful for Joseph. They're opening up this deep wound of his rejection, his own brother's rejecting him. And you know what? I see it as a huge sacrifice on Joseph's part. He is willing to relive his painful past so his brothers can have a blessed future. Joseph binds Simeon before their eyes. Why do you think he does that? He wants to remind them, this is how I was bound up, crying and screaming, and you guys let him do it and take me away. But why Simeon? We can't know for sure. But when Jacob was dying and he called all his sons around to bless them, he didn't have one good thing to say about Simeon. In fact, he said, you know what rules the heart of Simeon? Anger and violence. And so there's a chance, a possibility, that Simeon may have been one of the ringleaders in orchestrating Joseph's capture. Okay, I want to pick up the story after they get back to their father, Jacob. Verse 35. 
As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in their sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You bereave me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I don't bring them back to you. Put them in my hands. I'll bring them back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead. He's the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Okay, so we're going to be back around the kitchen table. Jacob's thinking, there's going to be food in the bowls tonight. My sons are coming back from Egypt. Instead, his sons tell him this terrifying tale of a stern ruler who accuses them and imprisons them and now has put Simeon in prison. In addition to that, they found all this money that they thought they had given to him. And the worst news of all, this ruler is saying, you've got to bring Benjamin back to Egypt. You know, Reuben claims, I'll bring him back safely or you can kill my two sons. What grandfather wants to kill his two grandsons? This is a reckless statement. This is a great um, you can judge these boys by this kind of a statement. Since Jacob blames his sons for the loss of Joseph and Simeon, he won't allow the possibility of losing Benjamin. So there they sit, staring at each other again at the kitchen table. And Jacob says something wonderful like, everything is against me. A hopeless statement. And the brothers sit terrified in fear, a hopeless attitude. Jacob and his sons feel hopeless and fearful as they remain in a spiritual and a literal famine. But God will continue to use Joseph to restore their hope. This story is to be continued. But Joseph's about to remind them outside of God's divine purpose is nothing. Everything is made to be submissive to it. He's going to say to his brothers, you're God's people. God has plans for you. God has promises for our nation. So when they meet Joseph face to face, not as their ruler, but as their brother, he's going to tell them about the glories and the purpose of a God, and they will find new hope in their hearts. When God is our number one hope, we get to grow hope in the hearts of others as well. So God's going to work in the ups and downs of our lives. God's going to work his purposes for us. We get to be Joseph today in the lives of others. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love you for your word that inspires us. Remind us of all your plans. Bless us for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.